So this morning, uh, I didn't want to have to do this, but we do have to do it, pick up in the middle of this prayer, and I didn't have time to do the introduction I wanted to. We're going to do that next week. Um, so we're going to pick up somewhat awkwardly in the middle of a prayer that just really needs to be all at once, essentially. Uh, this prayer that Jesus prays on behalf of his disciples right before the cross and as I said, next week we'll come to the conclusion of the prayer. And, and before we come to the conclusion, we'll go back to the beginning and see it together. But for right now, we're just going to make some backwards references to get the context we're going to need to understand this part of the prayer. And we'll start with verse 18, with these words of Jesus. But I just want to say, first of all, that the Lord is... This is, this is beautiful, and so I, I pray that you pray along with Ed, that the Lord does open up this passage to us and reveal to us how lovely it is. I'm praying that we're going to see oneness in a, in a way that blows all our other ideas kind of out of the water. We're just going to see this in a way that we've never seen it before. So, John 17, verse 18, Jesus prays, As you sent me... Into the world, I also sent them into the world. Now, again, if we had been reading the whole chapter in this prayer, we might feel right now like that was totally unexpected. That that doesn't fit. It's out of place. It jars us, at least at first, instinctively, naturally, if we're just reading the prayer, because in verse 9, Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of the world. I pray only on behalf of those that you gave me. So this prayer, there's a very, there's a very particular emphasis in this prayer. Jesus prays that after he has left the world, and you kind of get this idea that it's not such a bad thing to leave the world, okay? The Father would please keep and guard the disciples. And why do they need to be kept and guarded in his holy name? Because where are they? They're still in the world. And so he prays that, that, that they would not perish in the world. Jesus says that the world hates his disciples because they are not of the world, even as Jesus is not of the world. You get the the flavor. So if all that is true, now I hope we really got that, that we don't just know, know the stereotypical Sunday school answers. This is the world, brothers and sisters. The world hates us. Jesus does not pray for the world. He prays for those the Father gave him. Uh, Jesus prays the Father would keep his disciples from the world. They wouldn't perish in the world. Then we have to ask, why, when Jesus goes back to the Father, does he leave his disciples in the world? And even if we feel like we, you know, we know the answer to that, we ought we ought to take this seriously this morning so that we might be comforted as those here who are still, to this day, in the world. Why does Jesus say in in verse 15, 
I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Because, you know, we're reading this thinking, ah, what? Could you ask that he does take us out of the world? If that's what this world is, take me out. And Jesus says, I don't ask that. I don't ask you to take them out. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. It's true. But he is praying for those whom the Father has given him. What's the next words? Out of the world. So, John 17, in this prayer, 6 and 9, says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I ask on their behalf. And so what we see, and we're reminded of, brothers and sisters, is that as ugly as the world is around us, as much as the world, as the world, will always hate Jesus and his disciples, in the world are those whom the Father has given to his Son. And they have not yet all been gathered in. This is why God sent Jesus where? Into the world. This in turn, then, is why Jesus doesn't just leave us in the world. He doesn't go away and say, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to leave you here for a while. No, he actually says, I sent them into the world. Even as he was sent. And so here, I just loved to think about this this week, and I love to say it to you and the authority of God's word. We're not still here for no reason. And what a wonderful comfort that should be to us, especially in the light of what this world is. And, we, and I, I, I want to say this next part because we can be like, especially in light of what the world is becoming. But I want to say in light of the, what, what the world has always been, brothers and sisters, This ought to be a comfort to us. We are not sitting here twiddling our thumbs, waiting for something to happen. No, God sent us into the world. We're still here on purpose. Praise God for that. Not only should that be a comfort to us, it should be an exhortation to us and a conviction to us. It's easy to view the world out there in either all rosy colors at least depending on how we look at it in terms of the pleasures and the, and the things we enjoy and all that, or in the darkest, only the darkest of colors. So we're still here on your, in your handout on purpose to be the instruments through which Jesus is still bringing in those the Father gave him. See, before the foundation of the world, God gave to his Son, the Father gave to his Son, a people to be his own. Those people have not all yet been brought in. That's why we're still here. Now, not only that, not only are we the instruments through which they're to be brought in, but, but here's another, and this is key, because this is going somewhere. This is going somewhere we don't expect. Okay, I don't think we do. But we are to be the community. Why, why are we still here? Not only to bring them in, but to be the community into which they're brought. Right? So, So if we don't function well as a group of believers, as a body, as people who are the flock, then the people who are brought in have nowhere to be brought in 
too. So not only do we go out, but we must meet to be the people into which that the, the people, the flock, the sheep can come, the flock into which they're being gathered. So Jesus prays in verse 19. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So in, in chapter 10, it was Jesus, it was the Father who sanctified Jesus and sent him into the world. See how sanctified and sent go together there too? Now Jesus says that I am the one the Father has sent into the world and so I sanctify myself. So a lot of times when we think of sanctification, we think of being set apart from evil or wickedness or that which is impure. But of course, there's another side to sanctification where you're set apart for something. You're set apart to someone. And so when the emphasis is positive, like that, and like it is here, we can think of the idea of consecration in your handout. Consecration. So in the Old Testament, and this this sets us up to, to see the beauty of what Jesus says, Aaron and his sons were sanctified, or they were consecrated, for their priestly service. So if we read in Exodus 28, you will clothe Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him with these things, and you will anoint them, and you will ordain them, and you will sanctify them. Really, you will consecrate them in order that they might serve as priests to me. Then in the book of Deuteronomy, we read that all the animals were to be sanctified. You don't, you don't sanctify animals from evil, but you can sanctify animals to a purpose, right? To, a, to, a te- to something that they're going to be used for. So Deuteronomy 15 says, all the firstborn that are born in your cattle and in your sheep, you shall sanctify those animals. You shall consecrate the males to the Lord your God. Now, I hope you're already seeing this with me, right? The priests were sanctified, and the animals were sanctified, consecrated. So now what happens when Jesus says in John 17 that he consecrates himself? He's consecrating himself for his priestly work in offering himself as a sacrifice. So he is not only the priest, but he's the sacrifice. And why does he consecrate himself as the sacrifice? This is important so that he might bring in the sheep, join them all in one flock, so that the children of God might be no longer scattered abroad, but gathered into one. So, why was Jesus sent into the world? To gather them in to the flock. Why does Jesus consecrate himself for that mission in the world? So that through his priestly offering of himself, he might bring in the flock and gather them into one. Furthermore, Jesus consecrates himself so that we might also be consecrated as the instruments of his saving mission in the world. So if Jesus says, I consecrate myself, therefore our consecration must be similar to his. That means that that we're consecrated for that same mission of going into this world, right? 
We are the ones through whom Jesus is still bringing in those whom the Father gave him. And, this is important, we are the community into which the sheep are being gathered as one. When we go out and witness to someone, for example, we're not just trying to get that individual saved, right? As So to speak. We're seeking that they might be gathered and brought into the flock, into this body, the community of, of the believers. And so from this, we begin to see that the ultimate goal of our mission in the world is any guesses? On the, and you don't have to say it out loud, but I just kind of hoping maybe you're thinking with me here. What's the ultimate goal of our mission in the world? It is oneness. Now we're going to see that more clearly as we move along, but I want us to see it already just to begin to process that thought. Because why is that the ultimate goal of our mission in the world? Because it was the ultimate goal of our Lord's own mission in the world. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world for the sake of oneness. That's why he sent us. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they themselves also may be consecrated in truth. Why were we consecrated? For the sake of oneness. We'll see that as we move along. Verse 20. I do not ask these things on behalf of these 11 disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word as the result of them, right, having been sent into the world. So Jesus says, I sent them into the world. That means others are going to believe. So who's Jesus praying for here? He's praying for everyone else who's ever going to believe. Now here's really important. It's really important that we see who Jesus is praying for here. Who's he praying for? We know he's not praying for the world. That's negative. We can say that in the negative sense. But who is he praying for? He's praying for all those who believe in him and who will ever believe in him. That's going to be important. He's praying for all the sheep from the beginning to the end. That means you're encompassed in this prayer, right? We are. Whether they've been gathered in yet or not. So Jesus prayed for people today who are still uh, in their sins. Right? They have not yet been saved. To this day. He's praying for all the children of God, whether they're still scattered abroad in the world or not. And what does he pray for them? What does he pray for all these people? And who are these all these people? They're all that the Father gave him. All. And what does he pray for all these people? Holy Father, keep them in your name. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, and we could add alls here, everywhere. Sanctify them all by the truth. Your word is truth. Can you see now that Jesus is praying for oneness? That's what he's praying for. Holy Father, keep them all in your name. 
What's that? That's oneness. Do not let them be pressed into the world's mold. Sustain them all in the true knowledge of you. Keep them, Father, in eternal life, all of them, by guarding them all in the way of holiness. That's what he prays for all. Sanctify them all by the truth. Your word is truth. Keep them all in eternal life by the revelation of your name that you've given to me, by the word of truth. And when you add it all up, what's the sum of all these things? It equals oneness. That's what it equals. So what we see then, and we haven't even got to where Jesus is going to say it outright. But uh, what I I want us to see is we don't just wait for Jesus to use the word one. We see it in the prayer Jesus prays. Jesus, Jesus is praying, in praying for these things, he's praying for oneness. That's what he wants. And so we see that oneness is not peripheral to redemption. Sometimes we think, oh, oneness is something we ought to pursue, we ought to be better at. I'm saved, and then I try to be, we, we try to pursue oneness. No, oneness actually contains in itself, if you know what oneness is, you know that oneness contains in itself all of your redemption, the whole of it, from beginning to end. This is why Jesus prayed in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may always be one. I know uh, sometimes I've read that verse and been like, wow, what's, the big, what's such the big deal about one? Well, I missed the whole point. Because one is the essence of our redemption. This, this is like, and we're going to hopefully see that in a moment from what Jesus says, that they may be always one even as we are. And this is also why Jesus prays again here in our passage, I do not ask these things on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And then what does he say? That they may all be always one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So I want to ask you this question. What what is our oneness? What is our oneness? I just want to say it's not, it's not loving each other. That is not our oneness. Love is something that thrives in our oneness. But love is not our oneness. So what is it? Well, I'm going to start out with something that's a little kind of not, doesn't feel the most practical. But then we, we can unpack it. And we should know how to do that by now from looking at this prayer. Our oneness is this. It is our common eternal life that we possess. Brothers and sisters, I rejoice to say that based on the merits of Jesus Christ and his shed blood and sacrifice, I possess eternal life. And it's no different of a life than you possess through faith in Christ. And so our oneness is our eternal life shared in common together. What does that mean practically? Well, what's eternal life? 
Jesus told us at the beginning of the prayer. So what is our oneness? It's a common knowledge of the only true God in Jesus Christ can be sent. Our oneness is not, is not primarily horizontal, it's vertical. So I know the same God, true God you know, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So our oneness is a relational knowing and trusting in God that's shared together in common. Now then, we can unpack it further based on Jesus' prayer. Our oneness is a common holiness. Our oneness is a common way of living, a lifestyle that we live. So people should see the lives we live and say, oh, they're all the same. That's our oneness. It's a fundamentally holy way of life that's shared in common together. So I, I, I mean, it is a joy, certainly, to come to church and to gather together with people who share in common a holy way of living. But our oneness is more than that. We can see that in this prayer. Our oneness is a common commitment to the word of truth. In other words, it's a belief in the living doctrines of the gospel that we share in common together. Like sometimes I come to church and I'm like, wow, you believe the same things I believe. Right? And you look at one another, we all believe because... That's the oneness that Jesus prayed for. Did you notice that none of this has anything to do with necessarily how I'm treating you or you're treating me? Now, how we treat each other certainly um, should flow from this oneness. But this is our oneness. So let me just say, our oneness is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It is not, we should see by now, an organizational unity. When people talk about the ecumenical movement, they often go to John 17 and say, we all need to get together, right? We all need to be in the same organization, even, you know, or just all agreeing together. But that's not even what oneness is. Why are we even talking like that? Oneness, as we've seen, is a common way of holy living, a common commitment to the gospel doctrines and truths. It's a common knowledge of the only true God in Jesus Christ he sent. And therefore, to sum it all up, it's a common eternal life that we all have together. And so, oneness is not organizational unity. It's not an emotion or feeling. It's not simply love. Our oneness, in your handout, sums up all that our salvation is. Do you see that? It's not peripheral. It's not a neat byproduct. Oneness is not a neat byproduct of our salvation. Oneness sums our salvation up. And Jesus expresses this very comprehensible reality. We can understand this stuff. In language so wonderful that we can't understand it. That's what I love. We can get it. But then we can't get it. Because he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be 
in us. What is love then? Biblical Christian love, the love between believers, is simply that which flourishes. I mean, you look, where, where should love grow? In the soil of oneness. So if we all share a common holy life, if we all share a common commitment to the gospel doctrines, if we all share a common relational knowing of the only true God and Jesus Christ he sent, where should love grow? In the soil of that oneness. Remember again these passages from John chapters 10 and 11. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, Jesus is very particular about who he lays down his life for. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Now, I want to ask you again, how often do you read that passage and think, well, that's a neat byproduct of Jesus laying down his life for us and saving us? Or do we read that and say, that's why Jesus died, for the sake of oneness? Because of what oneness encompasses in itself. John 11. Now, Caiaphas did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he, in order that he also might gather together into one. That's not peripheral. That's at the heart of Jesus' atoning work on the cross and of our salvation, that he might gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And what is that oneness? Common holiness, common commitment to gospel truth, common knowledge of the only true God, a common eternal life. Can you see now, why does Jesus pray for oneness? Well, what did Jesus come and die to accomplish? Why is this oneness such a big deal to Jesus? We should be able to see now that in praying for our oneness, what Jesus is really praying for is all the fullness of our salvation, of our redemption. The ultimate goal of our being consecrated and then sent out into the world, the ultimate goal, is can be summed up in one word, oneness. And that's because the goal of Jesus' own mission, when he himself came into the world, was oneness. And so our oneness includes, within itself, whenever we talk about that, we're talking about all these things. Walking together in the same way of holiness. Think about that, right? Believing together the same word of truth. Knowing and trusting together the only true God 
And so therefore sharing together the same eternal life. And when we share together the same eternal life, that is to say that we are in God even as the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. This is a oneness. Once we understand this oneness, then we know it's a oneness that's visibly on display before the world. Now, love helps it to be even more visible. But love is, is, is not the only thing that makes it visible. Our oneness is itself visible. Take away, you can't take away love from oneness. But if you could, our oneness would still be visible. Common holy living. Common commitment to the word of truth. Right? Common knowledge of the only true God. Jesus prays then, as this oneness is on display before the world, he prays, I ask these things that they may all be one. And brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, if Jesus prays that we all will always be one, will we all always be one? Yeah. The answer is yes. You can go back to John 3, verse 17, in the message on John 3, where we talk about this idea that he... this. We talk about it there. So the answer is yes. When Jesus prays for it, he prays for it. He's not saying so that they might possibly be one, but so that they will most certainly be one. Now, we don't always live up to that oneness perfectly yet. And then Jesus says, Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Does that trip anyone up? Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Because after all we've just seen, oneness has been like the ultimate thing, right? And now all of a sudden, and this always, I was always like, man, am I reading this chapter wrong? Whenever I would read this chapter, because all of a sudden it felt like our oneness was just a means to a greater end. Why does Jesus pray that we would be one? So that we could get more people saved. Right? Jesus prays we would be one as a means for our, our evangelistic witness in the world. But I want to ask you the question now. This is, a, this is a test to see if we've got this yet. How could there possibly be a greater or more ultimate goal than our Oneness. How could there be? Our oneness is not a means to an end. It is the ultimate end, brothers and sisters. This is the end. Our oneness. It's tied up in the very Trinitarian nature of God. Let me put it this way. Jesus has already been praying for the salvation of the world. Insofar as, who has he been praying for? Remember who he's been praying for? How many of the people who will ever believe? All the people who will ever believe Jesus has been praying for them. 
And so in this sense, what we could say is that Jesus has already been praying for the oneness of the world. Go back to John message on John chapter 3. In other words, he's praying for the world as a new, a new humanity. There's different ways world is used in John. He's praying that the world would be one as a new humanity. All the people who will ever believe. A new creation, right? So here's my question to you. If Jesus has already prayed for everyone who will ever believe in him, that's what this whole prayer has been for. He's been praying this whole prayer for all of them. And if what he has prayed is that they will all of them be one, that everyone I'm praying for will all be one, you'll keep them all, then what can he mean when he says that this oneness of everyone who will ever believe in him will result in the world believing that the Father sent him. Who is this world that will believe? Jesus said, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. All those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Jesus is going to pray, and just a few verses later, he's going to pray this. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, because it's the world, yet I have known you, and these have known the ones you gave me. They have known that you sent me. So we have to come back to this idea that in the context of this prayer, the world is the theater. In the context of this prayer, we can go to John 3.16 and there's a different context. In the context of this prayer, the world is the theater for God's saving work. Because it's out of the world, Jesus is calling his sheep. But the world itself is the confirmed enemy of God and always will be because it's the world. So what can Jesus mean? When after he prays for all who will ever believe in him, that they may all be one, he then goes on to pray, May they all be one, all who will ever, 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 ever believe in me, may they all be one, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Are you already seeing how beautiful oneness is? It's not just a means to an end. It is the end. So, just to help us see this briefly, there are three places in John where people are said to believe in Jesus. In the sense of believing that he is the Messiah, but not having a true saving faith in him. You can look those verses up. They're there in your handout. Now, here in verse 21, Jesus says that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23 repeats this, repeats this verse almost exactly. Except it says that the world may know that you sent me. 
So believing and knowing are used synonymously here. Now, that could be a saving knowing, a saving knowledge, or not. But I want to read chapter 8. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. We could say, then you will believe that I am he. That's not a saving belief. It's not a saving knowledge. And that I do nothing for myself, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So Jesus tells every single one of those unbelieving Jews he was talking to, that when he is lifted up, then they will know. John chapter 14, verses 30 to 31. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but so that the world may know, and they most certainly will know, that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The world will know, and you have to go back and we can look at the messages on those passages, but this is what Jesus is talking about. It's not a saving knowledge there, necessarily, though it could perhaps lead to saving faith. could lead to that. Jesus says in chapter 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, which is a fruit of oneness, and thrives in oneness, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, how many men will know? <laughs> All men will will know, or we could say will believe that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And once again, that knowing or believing, used synonymously here in John, isn't of a saving quality. Though again, it may lead to saving faith. Jesus said to the Jews in chapter 10, last one, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? And they did say that. (laughs) They said, you're blaspheming. Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Jesus isn't using believe there in a sense of a saving faith. He's just saying, okay, discount my words if I don't do the works of my Father. Don't be convinced I'm telling you the truth. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works. Be convinced by the evidence so that you may know and continue knowing that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And so once again, what do you see? This this knowing and believing does not appear to be in and of itself of a saving quality. He's exhorting, Jesus exhorts the Jews who say, you're blaspheming Jesus. Jesus exhorts them to believe the evidence of their eyes. Jesus says, look, what do you see? Believe the evidence of your eyes. Be convinced of certain redemptive facts. You should be convinced, I am the Messiah. I did come from God. And the ultimate goal of being convinced of those facts is that it's accompanied by a true saving faith. But there's there's this different level to that. And so now here in chapter 17... You, you put it together. When Jesus prays, I ask these things that they may all be one, all who will ever believe in me, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may all of them who will ever believe be in us so that, 
So that what? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is concerned for his vindication in the eyes of a hostile world. Because it's about the Father's glory. The Father is glorified not only when we come to saving faith. The Father is glorified when even the world itself must acknowledge that Jesus is sent from God. So, of course, you know the answer that I would suggest here. The question is, is Jesus speaking of the world having saving faith? I'm not, I'm not eliminating the world from the picture. Jesus already prayed for the world in the sense that he prayed for all who will ever believe. Or is he speaking of the world being compelled to acknowledge or be convinced of certain redemptive facts? No chapter in the Bible is more exclusive or more universal than John 17. John 17 is all about those the Father gave Jesus. I mean, he even goes so far as to say, I don't pray for the world, I pray for those you gave me. And yet John 17 is also more universal than any other in the sense that, or is as universal, because Jesus prays for all. I don't pray for them only, but for all. And then he says, I pray for them all. So there's one last point I want to make. and Actually, two more. I'll wait for the last one. It's decisive. Believe here, and this is really quick, and it's a little bit of Greek, but I think it'll really help. Believe is in the subjunctive mood. Just means it's a special mood. Mood of, we call it the mood of potentiality. It doesn't mean it's just potential. It could be certain potential. Right? You could have certain potential. Um, but that's the mood. Now, if believe was an aorist subjunctive, if it was aorist, that's, we usually think of aorist as past tense. It just means it's a point in time action, point in time punctiliar action, right? That's, that's aorist. So if it was aorist, then the emphasis would be on a point in time action. We would translate, we could translate it like this. That the world may come to believe at a point in time that you sent me. Now, that would fit better with saving faith. However, that might or might not indicate saving faith. Okay? It could go either way. But this is not an aorist subjunctive. It's a very rare present subjunctive. Present has the idea of, con- here, with a subjunctive, has the idea of a continuing Action that's just going on all the time. So it indicates not a point in time action, but ongoing action. So we would translate like this, and the NASB actually has this in its marginal note. That the world may always be believing. We could say that the world may always be believing at all times that you sent me. What Jesus is concerned for here is not the redemption of the world. What he is concerned for is the vindication of his saving mission in the world.
This, in addition, therefore, to everything else we've seen, indicates Jesus is not speaking here of a saving faith. He has certainly prayed for saving faith. In what sense could it be possible for the world to be always believing at all times with a saving faith? That the Father sent Jesus. The point here is rather that whenever and wherever the world is confronted with the oneness of Jesus' disciples, it will always be compelled to believe, to know, even in its hostility to Jesus, that in fact, Jesus has been sent by God. Can you see now how this only reveals further the beauty of this is that it reveals even further the true redemptive glory of our oneness. Our oneness we see even more clearly than ever was not simply the means to some greater or other end. Our oneness is that ultimate fruit of Christ's redemptive work which vindicates him in the eyes of the world. Because our oneness is eternal life shared together. Our oneness is a relational knowing and trusting in God that's shared together. It's a fundamentally holy way of living that we share together. And it's a commitment to the word of truth that is shared together. This is our oneness. And so it's a oneness visibly on display before the world when the world is confronted with that oneness. And so this oneness of all those the Father has given to Jesus is the vindication of Jesus. It is the vindication that he is God's Messiah sent from heaven. And it is, this oneness is the triumph of his saving work even in the eyes of a world that remains hostile to him. Did you ever think oneness was such a big deal? And so it is in this that we see the true glory of our being one. Look around, brothers and sisters, and know that we're one. John, Jesus then continues in verses 22 to 23. And now we, can understand, now we can get this. Because again, when I used to read John 17, I mean, I, I always knew it was the truth, and I, and I always thought there was a lot of beautiful stuff here. But I would get to this, and I just didn't quite get the oneness thing. I didn't see what it really was. Now we understand when Jesus says, the glory. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one. Just as we are one. Now, this, I'm not repeating the previous verse. He's saying it again. I in them, and you in me, 
that they may be perfected as one. That's why Jesus died. So that the world may always be knowing at all times that you sent me. And loved, what's the next word? Them. And I've read commentators, and they don't know what to do with that word them. They, they, they look at them, and they think, that doesn't, that, that doesn't seem right. And, they, and I honestly, honestly, and I benefit from these same commentators greatly often, but they feel like them, they, they just don't, they explain it, and it just doesn't work. But when we read it as we've read it, which I think is the very natural reading, we understand that Jesus is praying for the vindication of his disciples in the eyes of a hostile world. That the world may always be knowing at all times you sent me and that you loved them. What does John say in Revelation, or Jesus say in Revelation? I will cause them, I will cause those who say that they're Jews but are actually a synagogue of Satan, I will cause them to know that I have loved you. That's not saving there, that's vindication. That you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. So, as we come to the conclusion, I'll ask you this question now, and it is, it is rhetorical in the sense of don't answer out loud, but it's not in the sense of ask yourself this question. What is the ultimate mark of God's saving, redeeming love for you and me? It's our oneness. You can sum it up in that one word. Here then is not only the vindication of Jesus, but our own vindication in the eyes of a world that remains hostile to us. And, in, and from which Jesus is still calling out the sheep and the children of God, right? But the world that hates us Because it's the world. The world that hates us, verse 14, is compelled by our oneness to know that God has loved us. In this, we see the true glory of being one. Are you incredibly incentivized right now to go out and live in light of this oneness? What does love look like in light of this? What does thinking of our neighbor is more important than ourselves, the neighbor we're sitting next to you, look like in light of this oneness? But, but, but more than that, what does holiness look like in light of oneness? Because what is holiness? Uh, what is oneness? It's a common way of holy living that we share together. So why do you want to live holy lives for the sake of oneness? Why do you want to be committed to the true doctrines of the gospel for the sake of oneness? Why do you want to know God more for the sake of oneness? And let us then remember 
that it is for the sake of our oneness that we have been consecrated and sent into this world so that all the children of God might be gathered into one. I was so excited when when I feel like the Lord brought this scripture to my mind as a concluding passage. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, 27 to 28. Paul exhorts us all, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's that? That's a common holiness. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances that you are standing firm in one spirit. See, there's the oneness. Live your lives in the same way. So that I'll see you're standing firm in one spirit with one soul contending together for the faith of the gospel. What's that? A common commitment to the word of truth. And then he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. There's the world, right? And then he says, which, now that which does not refer back to the fact that we're not alarmed. It refers back to our common holiness and our common commitment to the word of truth. It refers back to our oneness. So what does Paul say? Which oneness is a sign of destruction for them? but a sign of salvation for you. Vindication. The triumph of Christ's saving work. And that too, from God. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, the glory of of the oneness that Jesus came into this world to bring about. A oneness that's possible Nowhere else, but that, but that he did not just render possible, but that Jesus actually accomplished through his shed blood on the cross and through his, even this prayer in which, in which he prayed for all who would ever believe that we would all be one. So that the world would always be knowing that indeed he is the one sent from you, that his, his cross work has won the triumph, whether it's admitted or, or believed savingly or not. And we praise you that also in our oneness is where we see our own vindication and the sign of your own love for us as you loved Jesus. As we see the beauty of this, Lord, we also are compelled to confess that we have not valued this oneness that we have as Jesus did and as Jesus does. We have not valued this oneness in the sense that we have not pursued holiness And we have not pursued the common holy life that we all have together. Lord, in other ways, and, and we can take it even to the, 
to the place of love. How can we not love one another if indeed we are one and if we love that oneness? So Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you open our eyes first of all to the beauty of oneness, to what it really is and why Jesus prayed for it like he did. And having had our eyes opened to this beauty, convict us of our sin and call us with all the more zeal and longing to live out our oneness every day. To the glory of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.